Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Today, we are trying something new. We are taking a week off of our Offscript series to bring you an interview with Jerry Weirwill about emotionally healthy spirituality. Jerry has a PhD in biomedical engineering, a master's of theological studies, and he's currently working on a master's of divinity at the United Theological Seminary. He blogs at jerryweirwill.com, that's W-I-E-R-W-I-L-L-E, and he's currently working for Spirit and Truth Fellowship International, translating and writing commentary for the Revised English Version. He's also very active in ministry, teaching, counseling, and leading events. Welcome to Rest Studio, Jerry. Thanks, Sean. Glad to be here. So let's talk about emotional health. What got you interested in this topic? In my MDiv program, we, the introductory course on spiritual formation, we read this book, uh, by Peter Scazzaro called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And it opened up a whole venue of, uh, of understanding what it means to kind of like venture and journey into the spiritual life and how you can't really divorce that from e- the emotional life. That uh, as a whole human being, we, we have a mind to think things, but we also have a body that feels things. And so I got really interested because there was a lot of ways that I just kind of didn't feel like I was really participating in my faith as a whole person. So we read this book, we talked about it in class, and a lot of the points that uh, Scazzaro brings up uh, seemed to resonate with me and helped me kind of recalibrate the way that I was seeing how the emotions uh, that we have have to also fit within our spirituality and that if we ignore them, uh, that we will end up coming to a detrimental place in our life where we'll be fighting against ourselves or the cognitive dissonance will build up that we'll have internal conflict and turmoil that'll, you know, unsettle us spiritually. Right. This is definitely an important subject. Within Christianity, there, what I've seen is you have some people that are so emotional, like to think of themselves as so spiritual that their emotions almost push them around. They are up one day and down the next, and they don't seem to have control over their own thinking. And on the opposite extreme, there are a bunch of Christians who think emotions are completely irrelevant. They're unreliable. They're to be stuffed or ignored in almost a, almost in an ascetic way where, you know, these are luxuries that are, you know, for, for the weak. Strong mind people don't give in to their emotions. There's definitely a range of different ways of thinking about emotions within at least the Christians that I know. So I think this is going to be really helpful to look at a perspective that hopefully can help us integrate ourselves as whole people, like you said, instead of just parts. So what were some of the points that that you learned from this book? I'll say the greatest thing that I learned was some of the cautions about unhealthy practices that bring about unhealthy emotional states in in the spiritual life. Could you and, give us could you give us some examples of unhealthy sure. emotional? Yeah, one one thing that uh Schizera points out is he calls it using God to run from God. 
And that's where you preoccupy yourself with activities in the church and things like that as a way to cover for your lack of involvement spiritually with God in an actual relationship in your faith, where you try to do things for God rather than be with God. And the idea being that if you're with God, you will naturally want to be in service to the kingdom, but you can't go the other way around. And some people think that of being involved in a lot of act service activities is a way to be spiritual or to try to pursue a spiritual life through that type of thing. And so it's kind of a backwards mentality. I, I just want to see if I understand that first point a little bit more. Would this be analogous to a married couple who... Uh, one of uh, say the husband does not feel the love for his wife anymore and so what he does is he he goes about doing things around the house or getting her flowers i mean how would you describe that in a human relationship what you said is you said this is somebody who spends a lot of time serving in the church rather than spending time with god mm -hmm. yeah i think it's in a relationship sense uh, an analogy would be that if a person would preoccupy themselves in say preparing meals uh doing chores and mowing the lawn all for somebody who comes home to the house when they're gone okay so exactly you're, you're serving somebody but you're never there with them mm -hmm. necessarily you're 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 in touch with them through a through your work efforts, through your activities, but you kind of go your way when they come. Right. So it's, acts of service, but with no quality time. Mm -hmm. Would you say that it's also where somebody's doing these things to earn favor with God? It could, it could come to that, but a lot or, of people do it innocently, just thinking that they're pursuing a spiritual life because they're involved in the context of the church okay. or, or in... So, so maybe they're just unaware that they need to also spend this time with God. Mm -hmm. So it's not necessarily something they're doing to earn God's favor or to make it so God likes them, but they're doing it just because that's all they know. Or yeah. That's, what, that's think, what the examples are around them. Yeah, but I think people kind of suffer from both, but yeah. definitely the people who are unaware of it, they, they're trying to be involved in the church as a way to uh, grow spiritually, when it's a backwards mentality that actually growing spiritually first comes from pursuing God in your own heart. And then from that stems the service and, and all the selfless acts then. Excellent. Uh, so what, what was your second point? Oh, the second point though was about the, your past. And some people like to just kind of like think that they ignore their past as though their past has no significance in their current life. And one of the things about emotional health is that who we are as a whole being is a composite of all of our experiences and to basically ignore what has happened to us in the past or who we used to be is to kind of invite problems in the future, especially if we never settled or processed parts of our life properly. So part of emotionally healthy spirituality is kind of owning up to who you are, who you were, and understanding how then you're going forward from that point. But uh, a lot of hurt still resides in people. And that hurt, if it's never dealt with, is almost like a, a little a little mini ticking bomb. And at some point, it'll, it'll come back to haunt them if they never really process and push past that and let God heal them from that past. I have uh, talked to people about this idea before, and sometimes the more biblically astute will argue on the basis of what Paul said in Philippians, that he's left these things behind. Philippians 3.12, which says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, 
But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And so people use this verse to say, hey, there's no use in looking backwards. You just need to look forwards. How would you respond to that sort of objection? Well, I would first say that Paul didn't forget who he was. And actually, he brings up his past quite often of, you know, where he came from and everything as a legitimate basis for who he identifies himself as in in the present. And uh, this verse here in, in Philippians 3 about forgetting the past is not ignore the past in the sense of it was meaningless. I don't care whatever happened. I'm just going to block it out, bottle it, stuff it down, whatever. Uh, he's, he's saying that don't get caught up in the past. And one of the things of emotional health as well is to not get caught up in the past. Part of identifying and understanding who you are is coming to terms with what has happened to you and then being resolved about that, letting God heal you from that, and then moving forward. So definitely after you've properly placed the context of your past and and who you've come to be in Christ and the work that God is doing in you, you can then move past what has happened and live in the new life that's in Christ. You said before, if you don't deal with the past, it's like a ticking time bomb that will go off in the future. In other words, in a sense, we can't help our past from affecting our future unless we have the courage to face our past, especially the areas of hurt that resurface as echoes later on when people push a button that is connected to that bomb. (laughs) Yeah, it's very much like in a relationship. If you just ignore conflict and sweep it under the rug, you can only deal with that so much before everything will just come raging back and, and erupt at some future point. What I hear you saying is that by dealing with the past, we can move past the past. Mm-hmm. By ignoring the past, the past continues to haunt us. Yeah, that there's still a possibility to be hurt again by the past if we don't deal with it. All right, so what else do we have on this on this subject? Another thing that Scazzera points out is what he calls spiritualizing away conflict. And what he discusses in this is to kind of ignore actual issues in a relationship in your congregation with your family and things like that by discussing them under the pretext that you're above them because to be spiritually mature is to always seek to be loving, to be unified, and to basically ignore problems because it will point out a disunity. So somebody who's emotionally healthy understands that there are natural differences between people that you will have disagreements and that trivializing them away doesn't actually promote growth. So are you saying that people sometimes say that being spiritual means you don't have conflict? Mm -hmm. And people think that to be spiritually mature means they have it all together. They never run into issues with other people. They're always loving and always seeming to just get along with every single person. And what they're kind of doing there is just basically skirting over any type of controversial discussions that could end in a disagreement because to disagree on something would seem that they now are no longer spiritually unified with them. Whereas spiritual unification, first of all, is on the basis of a spirit of God that brings together everyone in Christ. But then the second of all is to have the spirit of love, which is just to look unto each other for their good and to honor one another. But as human beings, we'll all have 
uh, our own particularities and understandings that we're all striving to seek Christ, that we may not have 100% complete agreement and see the eye eye on every issue. You remind me of Luke 17, verse 3, where Jesus instructs, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. So it doesn't seem like Jesus is assuming that his followers will not have conflict or will not deal with issues, but he gives them a way to deal with them, which is through confrontation and dialogue. And we we also know from Matthew 18 that Jesus says to take somebody aside privately and talk to them and sometimes bring in two or three others. And these are in relation to sin. Other conflicts we face, there might not be a sinner in the situation. It could just be a personality conflict or a decision disagreement or any number of other reasons for the conflict. And to be spiritual, I think, for many of us, gets confused with this idea of serenity that the spiritual person is always like a foot above the ground or something. (laughs) And uh, what I hear you saying is that that's really not the best way to think about it. The better way to deal with it is a truly mature, spiritually mature person is able to enter into a conflict with somebody in a loving way and try to work it out. And that's real maturity, not just this sort of like fake serenity. Yeah. Is that what you're saying there? Yeah, I'd say, I'd say it's, it's pretty good. I mean, you're you're going to have differences and preferences, ways to operate, right. yeah. uh, different ideas. And to be spiritually mature is to understand that you're seeking something more than just your own little ideas and your own way of doing things. Right. And on the other hand, Jesus does talk about the importance of unity in John 17 and that we should fight for unity with each other, and we see that again in Ephesians chapter 4. So obviously unity is important, yeah, but so is dealing with issues when they arise. And there are different kinds of unity. There's the kind of unity that's like a truce, where both parties don't feel satisfied and aren't at peace, but they agree not to fight about it. And then there's the deeper unity of they fought about it in a godly way and they know where each other stands and maybe they don't even still agree at the end of it but there's a deeper respect there or a deeper sense of we're going to stick together anyhow and there's no elephant in the room what else you got there well one other thing i want to share about scazzaro's work that it really hit home for me was that he says a spiritually mature person does not judge another person's spiritual journey in the sense that each of us are on a journey and we're all at different points in our growth and in, in us drawing near to the Lord. But to criticize or to think disparagingly of another person because they haven't yet arrived at a certain point or they haven't quite gotten a certain idea that Jesus or, or somebody in, in, in the scriptures are teaching and that this, this person is somehow now a, a lesser person because they haven't arrived at understanding this, this one point that that's actually placing yourself as judge over them and thinking that they aren't, they aren't quite as mature as you because they haven't arrived at a certain knowledge. And it's, it's, it's really weird because it's, it's part of being very critical because you, you think that everybody should somehow be like you. 
And therefore, if, if you have a certain perspective or you feel yourself to be a certain spiritual level and people aren't, you then elevate yourself and you look at yourself as being more spiritually mature. And that's an unhealthy position to be because in order to feel that you are superior to somebody means that you now consider the other person to be inferior. And what Schizera points out is emotional health is being content, understanding that everybody is on their own journey and you're all, we're all to help each other grow and seek the Lord and pursue God. And that means that we're all going to be at different points in that journey. And that's the whole point is we're all collectively seeking and searching. So Schizero's conclusion about that is that if we are looking at other people's issues and their faith, that a lot of times we lose sight of our own issues and we become preoccupied with trying to point the finger at other people to try to point out the beam in our neighbor's eye without even looking at the splinter yeah. that's in ours. And we become more absorbed in trying to steer other people than being concerned with our how are we doing spiritually and a lot of emotionally healthy spirituality is being in tune with who you are and how you're seeking the lord rather than diverting to something else a distraction other people uh worldly involvements and things like that yeah i think it's a hallmark of immaturity to fuss about other people in the sense of especially in the sense of justice now at the same time if you're in leadership or if you're pastoring people, it is, in a sense, your responsibility to help other people out spiritually and to guide them and sometimes call them out and other times encourage them and pastor people along the way. So how do you strike that balance? Yeah, that's actually an important aspect. If you are a pastor or a spiritual leader and you're shepherding some of God's people, you have to be aware of what's going on and be willing to step in and discern when people need help when they're straying from the right way and and when they're struggling or things like that and i think that has uh, definitely a connection with uh, looking at another person's spiritual journey and evaluating if they need assistance or help or whatnot and stepping in and giving wise counsel but i think a lot of it has to do with the motivation of the heart if it's a matter of if you are judging them because you're comparing yourself to them or if you see them and you see them needing help and then you step in in a genuine way, understanding that you're offering, um, you're offering some guidance or some type of counsel to them because you feel that they need it. But it's not because you see yourself as superior or you find, right. that, or you find that it makes you feel better by pointing out their failure or flaw. Uh, the emotionally healthy and spiritually mature person will be willing to go help somebody for the sake of that person, preferring them you know, above themselves and, and being considerate of another. And, and rather than it being stemming from a lack of security in themselves or in their faith and trying to almost belittle another in order to make themselves feel like they're still okay, they're still part of the group, they're still doing all right in their spiritual life. I hear what you're saying, yeah. Paul in Romans 14, he writes something that has... has kind of struck me when I was reading Schizero 14.2, one person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. Verse three, the one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand for the Lord is able to make them stand. And I mean, Paul's talking here about that we each have our own little peculiarities on where we're at in our faith. 
and to try to be critical or to be the judge of another person, Paul's saying, you know, it's not you to make that judgment. Each person stands before their own master, who is the Lord Jesus, and we are accountable to him, not to each other in the sense of, of our faith and our journey toward God. So I think in this idea of how to help people in a constructive way versus in an unhealthy way, it comes down to whether or not you're doing it out of a sense of pride or out of a sense of ego or a lack of self-esteem on your part, things like that. Instead of compassion. And compassion, yeah, and encouragement, mutual edifying. When I think about especially the statements Jesus says about himself in the Gospel of John, how he always speaks the words of his father and does the deeds of his father and Mm -hmm. constantly says, I have come to do the will of the one who sent me and this sort of statement, or I can do nothing on my own initiative in John 5, 19. So he had the greatest reason to feel lifted up and superior to others. And constantly he says, look, it's not me. Yeah, precisely. And this is the thing that Paul picks up in Philippians 2, is like what you're talking about with Jesus is in Philippians 2, 3, he writes, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Christ Uh, when he was ministering and everything, he looked upon other people and helped them because he was serving them, not because he was their Lord and master or anything like that. And they were the disciples, but because he had genuine care for them as people. Yeah. I mean, he calls himself the good shepherd. And in the context of that, which is John 10, he says, I lay down my life for the sheep. You know, that's what a good shepherd does. Hey, have you ever heard of Ed Smith and Theophostic prayer? Yeah, actually, Theophostic Prayer is a new thing that someone introduced me to recently. I've read his uh, his Theophostic Prayer book, and I went to one of his workshops. The uh, very similar idea of tracing backwards the trigger in the present to the memory in the past so that you can deal with that situation in the past, and then the idea is that that would then free you when something comes up. So, for example... I used to have this incredible fear of evangelism. I really prayed and asked God to show me, what is this? You know, you call me to, you know, the Great Commission is to go make disciples of all nations. Jesus says this kingdom gospel will be preached in all the world as a testimony, and then the end will come. So it seems like that's sort of like the plan. And I have some part that I need to own of this. I don't know how big or how small, but I I can't just assume everyone else is going to do it. But at the same time, the moment I think of going out and talking to a stranger or an acquaintance or somebody that's a non-Christian and telling them about my faith, I feel this overwhelming, paralyzing sense of fear. And so I was praying about it, and I was trying to figure out, when did I first have this same feeling? And my mind flashed, and I asked God to, to reveal it to me, and my mind flashed back to this memory from third grade. I was in class and I got a bloody nose and I was really embarrassed. And so I went off to the bathroom. The bathroom was in the classroom, so it was easy to get to. And I tried to do it in such a way that nobody else would see what was going on. And I went to the bathroom and I cleaned up my nose stopped bleeding and got it all under control and came back to my seat. 
I'm sitting in my seat, and the teacher sees a drop of blood. You know, I think I've gotten away with it. <laughs> and my teacher sees a drop of blood on the floor, and she freaks out. Oh, what's going on? Who's bleeding? And it's just like this bit. I mean, understandably, right? You're a third grade teacher. You see blood on the floor. And I'm just horrified. And I, I have to come clean about the situation. And I just felt so singled out in front of the whole class. And I felt like every like I was different than everyone else. And they were all looking at me. And it was just the same exact kind of feeling I had when I thought about evangelism later on. And I asked God to reveal to me what his truth was in that situation. And I just got this sense of realization that, you know what, that really wasn't that big a deal. Everything was more or less appropriate in that situation. The teacher should have freaked out because there's blood on the ground. That makes sense. I shouldn't feel weird or anything like kids get bloody noses. It's something that happens. And my peers probably didn't think anything of it. He just gave me a piece about the situation. In, in, a, in a sense, he resolved that pain way back there in the past. And the crazy thing is it worked retroactively. This is years ago when I was able to work through this. Anytime after that where I would go out and speak to strangers, even in a downtown area, going up to a complete stranger and sharing the faith with them, I don't have any fear at all. I might still feel awkward like if it's not a natural conversation or something, but I don't have that same paralyzing fear anymore. And so that's my own little testimony about dealing with something in the past and how it helped me. It's honestly helped me for years now to have freedom. And it's not even something I even worry about or think about. I don't psych myself up. I don't pray and ask God, like, God, help me with my fear here. Like, it's just gone. And I don't have to do anything about it. You know, each of us actually, when when we grow up, we all have some part of us where we're an emotional infant that needs to be healed by God. We all have at least one major wound because we live in this broken, sinful world where we're all, we're all infected by it to one degree or another. And we're constantly in a process of being refined by God to shed off that old man. And being an emotional infant in one category, it's typically a category that we have never surrendered to God or whenever we would ask him to come and help us with it, to heal us from it. We typically hold on to that on some level, and we don't always really know that the emotional underdevelopment is present until it comes, like you're saying, maybe at a, at a you're trying to go witness or evangelize, and you realize you, something's wrong. You, you don't like it. You, you feel awkward. You, I mean, what is that? We perceive it as normal. Mm -hmm. We're like, oh, everybody just probably feels this way. Yeah, and the thing about that I came to realize with emotionally healthy spirituality is that the unhealthy aspects, a lot of times we don't actually want to address them until the pain becomes too unbearable or until we hit a roadblock or an obstacle in our life where we're like, we have to now be forced. It's almost like, you know, when, when your mother tells you to go make your bed and you, you try to get around it, try to go do other things, right. try to run yeah. away. And until it comes to the point where your mother just forces you to go make your bed, like there's no way around it now you're, you're stuck. And that's a lot of times that I've found in my own life with spiritual immaturity is that uh, I don't want to look at myself and, and find out where I'm weak, where no. I'm still hurt, where I'm, where I'm an infant and haven't really grown up. And it's been a, a painful journey in a lot of aspects. And one of them in my life has been that I've been a, a type of person to really like to be a planner. 
and I've liked to kind of know what's happening. And it manifests itself in, in a form of almost, you know, I feel, I feel security by understanding and, and that comes across in a form of control. And so I've just had the hardest time uh, growing into understanding that uncertainty is all right. And that it actually forms an avenue for me to trust God more without having to figure out that I need to know what's going on at all times and understand exactly what the next step is. And this happened a lot in my own life when, when I was kind of leaving my former career of science and journeying into ministry. Uh, it was very uncomfortable. And it was very uncomfortable. And it was very uncomfortable because I, I've always been the person to have the vision and, and the trajectory of where I'm going and what I'm doing, how to achieve it. And when I started deviating from this idea of being a high-level researcher in the biotech field to going into Christian ministry, for the longest time, I just felt so unsettled because I was wondering how I was going to do this, where I was going to go, you know, what form the ministry, my work in ministry would take. And it really took a, a work of God in me to just realize that that was my problem where I was an emotional infant. I was not willing to let go of being worried about the future and the uncertainty and letting, letting God kind of just hold me in his hand and, and help lead me and guide me and to really build that trust that when the time comes, I'm going to see where the next step should be. But until then, I should just be concerned about the step I'm currently on. So would you say then that you felt like God was leading you to go into ministry, but in order to follow you had to abandon the security that goes along with a carefully worked out plan in the science field that you had already basically reached the pinnacle of the difficult part of getting onto the road of being a science professional. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would definitely say that God was leading me and calling me into ministry. The question was, are you going to trust God enough to have uncertainty in your future? Yeah. That's what it boiled down to is I just, I wasn't emotionally stable enough to be able to hold that tension in my life. And I just felt so uncomfortable for quite a while in that transition period, but it taught me a lot. And I realized that that was one of the wounds that I had in my heart was that I wanted to know what was going on. And I didn't want to just let God kind of know and to trust in him. It was almost, I, I wanted to have the plan in my hands because I felt better directing my own life. Yeah. What else we got? One more aspect that Skazera pointed out for uh, being a practice that is involved in unhealthy emotional spirituality is the idea that he calls dying to the wrong things. And dying to the wrong things is, is about kind of making the sacrifices that aren't really what you should be sacrificing. And what he talks about is the idea of dying to the wrong things. We're supposed to die to ourself. As Jesus talks about in, in Matthew 10, you know, that uh, whoever uh, does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. And the thing that Skizera points out is we oftentimes try to die to who we are as individuals rather than dying to the things in ourselves that are part of our sinful nature, such as things like uh, being overly defensive, being detached, arrogance, hypocrisy, judgmentalism, and a whole host of other things. And sometimes people and myself included, have thought that dying to ourselves 
includes not having any preferences as an individual, almost becoming uh, very stoic and, and like just trying to ignore, you know, the whole thing about emotions being a part of who we are, that we can't just uh, live apathetic our entire lives that like nothing matters. And so uh, one of the things he says is that we need to be careful that we don't cross over into just eliminating our individuality as a person as part of trying to grow in faith. Because growing in our faith includes who we are, who God has made us to be, and the things that uh, we see and experience. They all make up our individuality, and that is part of being emotionally healthy, is living in that reality. You reminded me of Galatians 2.20, where it says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I can see someone concluding from this verse that his or her own personal preferences are completely irrelevant. And that if one is crucified with Christ, then whatever they want is irrelevant. And that's not really a healthy way of looking at it. What do you think it's talking about? Mm-hmm. Right. Or you try to deny who you are. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and not, like, not like in who you are is in your, your, the desires, of your flesh. Those are the things that I was listing. Right. That's the things we have to die to. Yeah. But you as a person, your preferences, your unique personality and things like that. Uh, those are the things that are the wrong things to die for. And specifically in Galatians 2.20, you know, the context here involves Paul talking about his old life under the law and the new life he has in Christ. And the life that he lives in Christ is one that he is now free from the works of the flesh and of the body that he did under the law. And so that's why when he talks about the law and that if he would go again and become subject to the law, that he would then be a lawbreaker as in verse 18. And so the life that he lives in Christ now he lives because he trusts or has faith in the Son of God. And so this idea of, you know, that it's no longer his life, well, he, he still is doing everything as a person. He still uh, was writing letters and using his own education to help communicate and preach the gospel message. I'm sure he had his own favorite food that he still would go down to the market and get. I mean, right. so it's not like his, his former life just ceased to be and now he became an, an automaton and was now somehow sort of just this person formerly known as Paul. As an individual, his he didn't just all of a sudden become a different person. He didn't go from being an extrovert to an introvert or opposite. He didn't go from being a happy-go-lucky to a sanguine, like a more contemplative, calm, lackadaisical. I mean, those things didn't change. His outlook and his life purpose changed, and the reason why he was living changed. All right. Any other final concluding thoughts? Well, I would recommend... The book uh, from Peter Scazzaro, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, to anybody who has an interest in looking into what types of things can help benefit someone who's on a spiritual journey like we all are and understand what it means to be a whole individual and to take care of our emotional self as part of our spiritual self as well. That they both are a pair that make up who we are and uh, to give preference to one and ignore the other would end up leading to a, a detrimental imbalance in our faith.
Yeah, and ultimately that can lead to sin in our lives when we get frustrated or we act out in ways that we don't even understand. Thanks for talking with me today. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thanks, Sean. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to this interview. I realize that each week I ask you to give ratings in iTunes or Stitcher because podcasts with ratings and reviews show up better in searches, making it easier for others to find this podcast. I'm glad to report that Restitutio now has three reviews in the iTunes store. I had not been checking these, but I just set up a service to alert me anytime a new one comes in. So some of these are from a couple of months ago, but I wanted to read them out to you now. The first one from back in May comes from Would Be Knowing, who writes, Find here Pastor Finnegan's erudition and energy for the task of telling what the beloved 19th century hymn calls the old, old story. This capable scholar and devoted Christian seems to effortlessly balance the weight of knowledge he carries with a down-to-earth expository style that avails his learning and perceptions to the listener intent upon his words. There's a bright future for this podcast, but it's still early in Pastor Finnegan's online ministry. With the accretion of his luminous lectures, a fifth star will appear in the rating constellation already ascribed. Thank you, Pastor, for the light you cast. And this person gave four out of five stars. Thanks for such a glowing and kind review. It's really important to me to speak in such a way that people can understand me. And, well, I trust that this gentleman will be able to add a fifth star shortly since we just finished the Historical Jesus class, 16 lectures. And before long, I'm going to be podcasting my apologetics class. So hopefully... Whoever would be knowing is will tune in for that. The second review also comes from May is from S. Edwin Rufiner of Ohio. He writes, Restitutio is an informative, inspiring, and often motivational podcast on varying spiritual topics and biblical texts. Sean is an eloquent and captivating communicator with keen insights into biblical and ecclesiastical matters. I have found this podcast helpful on numerous levels and highly recommend it. And last but not least, just this month in July, Dory Stafford wrote, Sean Finnegan has created a wonderful show fit with sermons and discussions that reveal historical context and theological importance. He presents some of the most complex biblical and historical texts in ways that all can enjoy and retain. Make no mistake, he is a scholar. And fluent in Greek, might I add. Tune in, folks. Well, Dory, I would love to claim to be fluent in Greek. <laughs> uh, all I can say is that I've studied ancient Greek for a really long time, classical and koine, and I read it almost every day and work really hard at it, but I bet you could find plenty of words that I don't know off the top of my head, and I certainly couldn't carry on a conversation with a modern Greek person, because modern Greek is pretty different than ancient Greek. But anyhow, thank you so much for the kind words, and I appreciate these reviews, and I encourage you that, if you don't mind, if it's not too much trouble, 
if you could add your voice to the mix, or at least just give us a five-star rating or four-star rating so that people can find this podcast. And don't forget to check us out online at restitudio.org where you can find an archive of all the podcasts as well as a bunch of articles and links to other resources. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.